The richer you get, the harder it is to manage your estate. There's lots of moving parts like portfolio diversity, tax mitigation, asset protection, and estate planning. That's why the ultra wealthy use family offices, and that's where Valerity Wealth comes in for you. Run by a former sovereign wealth fund manager, Valerity Wealth brings institutional level expertise to the high paid professional. Let Valerity quarterback your finances. Book your free consultation at ValerityWealth.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast. And today I would like to start out by reminding you that there is the wealthformula.com website where you can uh, do all sorts of stuff. You can download newsletter type things. You can, you know, there's a free book there, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, which was an Amazon number one bestseller of mine that uh, you can download for free. You can actually even ask me questions. You can go to Ask Buck, leave some voicemails, etc. Uh, you can, uh, you can, and if you're shy, you can write questions, etc. For the next uh, next time we do a show like that, make sure you check it out. Get on the list. There's also an investor club for accredited investors that you can check that out as well. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, when you listen to the podcast, this is how you're going to get more involved in the community is trying to get involved with some of the other stuff. So anyway, let's, uh, let's get on with today's show. Um, I have to say that I think it is really important in times like these, uh, and actually even for the last four or five years, I'd say, beware, beware of chicken little. You remember Chicken Little, right? The, the book, the sky's falling, sky's falling, all that. Well, the problem is that the financial podcast space, and I am in that space, particularly in this alternative little space where we talk about real estate and all that other stuff, uh, it's small. And, you know, it's it's not like it's, uh, you know, not intentionally so, but we what happens is we start believing each other and then spreading those same opinions to our listeners as facts. And what happens when you start telling, you know, people people start telling you the same thing, you're hearing multiple people say the same thing, well, you start to believe it. It becomes fact. I mean, listen, that's how Wall Street works, right? But we're doing something similar in a very smaller world in this little alternative uh, investing podcast sphere. And you got to be careful of that. You know, general sentiment, in this, um, again, I use that word alternative because that's what they like to call us. Alternative investing communities right now are bearish, right? They are all bearish on the economy. They're all waiting for blood in the streets. The problem is that that has been the case now for three to three or four years. And guess what? Contrary to the opinions of the chicken little crowd, people who invested in real estate and equities over the past few years have actually done extremely well in the United States. And in fact, the United States in general has done very well. For those of you trying to figure out a an escape plan, the U.S. has not turned into Venezuela. That's all good news, right? Now, I, I, I get take, you know, I'll tell you that I, I've been guilty of this too. I think I think early on when I started podcasting, I think I was less cognizant of the um 
you know, the idea that you can kind of get trapped in this way of thinking. Um, and I think it's important to try to pull yourself out of that and be smart, you know, be listen to multiple people. And again, to the extent that I'm telling you, you know, to to be aware of the chicken little crowd, that's not to say that I'm personally a permable. And you know that. I mean, like most people who follow the economy, uh, even mainstream people like Doug Duncan, who was on the show not long ago, who was the chief economist of Fannie Mae, we all we all think that something's going to happen here eventually. We're in the you know, longest expansion of GDP in history. It was sluggish for most of it. Uh, rates are still really low. Debt's growing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So everybody has a hunch that at some point here, pretty soon probably, we're going to have some kind of recession, some kind of correction. But when I say some kind what does it look like? What does that downturn look like? You know, that's really the question. Is it blood in the streets as some are predicting? Or is it a recession? You know, they, they used to have these things called recessions that were not blood in the street prior to 2008, where you'd have something where, you know, there's a recession in the industrial sector of the economy. And we learn about it two months after the fact. And we say, oh, I didn't know that we were in a recession. That's the way it used to be, you know. So in days like these, like where we're, you know, where we're used to 2008, we know that we've gone a decade without a recession now. And, and you know, there's probably some asset bubbles. What is an investor to do? Well, I said it before. I've said it in past shows. Keep investing. That's what you do, you know. Uh, don't, you know, be smart about it, but keep investing. Now, for example, might not be the time when you, you know, a, a buddy taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, I'm really interested in getting into this whole real estate thing. I'm going to put together a deal, you know, a deal. Are you interested? It may not be the time for that, you know, stick with high quality assets, stick with, you know, if you're a passive investor, you know, invest in syndications, et cetera, stick with high quality, quality operators, uh, with good track records, right? Um, if you're holding on to property yourself, which I was doing, um, and I still have a little bit left, but I sold most of it, um, consider selling because, you know, right now we we're you know we're we're at the top of this thing. I'm not saying that it we're going to go crash tomorrow, but you know if you don't sell now, you probably will need to hold on for at least another five years. Um, and to to get back where we are, there's going to be some kind of a cycle. There is some kind of cycle, right? Um, but anyway, um, so there's lots of things you can do. But the big thing is high quality assets, high quality operators. Uh, you can hedge. You know, you can look at non correlated uh, investments. Uh, life settlements come to mind. You can check that out on investment opportunities to see what that's all about. Um, don't over leverage. You know, keep some liquidity on the sidelines. Now, I personally think that the best way of doing that is through a wealth formula banking strategy. And what that does, it'll keep your money working for you, uh, compounding rate while, while you wait. And, you know, you have this liquidity sitting here on the sideline. Uh, and, you know, you don't need it all there, but have some there. So if there's an oppor- 
opportune time, you can pounce. Hedge your position, but don't act like the sky is falling yet. Because, as I said, it is extremely difficult to predict the financial future. But I will say that over the past couple years, one firm has really caught my attention, right? So these guys have been extraordinary. Um, Since the 1940s, they have been right almost 95% of the time about um, predicting recessions, predicting upside economy. Uh, They even predicted 2008. They predicted the meltdown. They predicted it three years before it happened. But, of course, there's a lot of people who say, I predicted 2008 too, but those are often the people who also predicted 2007-654321 and all the 90s. So these are people who actually predicted a downturn, a major downturn in 2008, but also predicted the upside of the last decade with 95% accuracy since the 1940s. So you might be trying to, uh, you might be curious what they're predicting next. And uh, I don't blame you because I sure want to know. And and that's why I've been following them very carefully. Um, And if you want to know why, make sure to continue listening after we come back. We're going to have a fellow from ITR Economics uh, named Dr. Alan Ballou. You are not going to want to miss this one. Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, These guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Dr. Alan Ballou. He's the CEO of ITR Economics. ITR Economics was founded in 1948. Uh, It's the oldest privately held, continuously operating economic research and consulting firm in the United States. Uh, ITR's long-term accuracy rating is is 94.7%, including successful forecasts of major economic events such as the 2008 recession, well in advance of uh, its occurrence. Uh, Alan serves as the chief economist for 
for numerous U.S. and European trade associations, and his unparalleled track record of accurate forecasting and knowledge of global markets has earned him the respect and appreciation of many business leaders globally. Uh, he's also the co-author of Prosperity in the Age of Decline, which is a fantastic book, which we're going to link to, a, a powerful look at how to make the most of the U.S. and global trends over the next 20 years, uh, and Make Your Move, a practical guide on increasing profits through the business cycle changes. Uh, Alan, welcome to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you very much. If I may, just because Brian may listen to this, my twin brother Brian is actually the CEO. I'm, I'm the president. We're both principals. Got it. Got it. Okay, no, no problem. I didn't, want, I didn't want to think I was forming your cue oh. of who on your program. So. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, you know, and I and I also should, and I want to add that you are also uh, co-author uh, with him on a book called "But I Want It," which is now my uh, nine, five, and three-year-old daughter's favorite book at night. Right? It, it's about it's an economic book about saving uh, for for children, which is another thing that we're going to link to as well. Fantastic uh, little book there as well. So I want to start a little bit more about uh, just a little bit of background on ITR economics. Obviously, started in the '40s. Uh, who was running it then, and and how did you and your brother end up picking uh, picking up the uh, the firm and 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 taking it from there? Well, a very thoughtful and very um, ingenious economist named Chapin Hoskins started the Institute for Trend Research, as it was known then. His uh, passed away in the early '70s. His successor was Helen Langwasser. She brought in Brian in 1983. He bought her out in 1987, and he brought me in as his partner in 1989. I so, came from industry. He came from government. Interesting. So, that, you know, what, what's striking to me is the, uh, the track record of forecasting. And uh, obviously, that's a, a big part of what ITR is known for, forecasting the economy, major economic trends, uh, and it's been really impressive. Um, for us— uh, non-economists who wish we could predict the future. Can you give us sort of a high level of indicators that um, that you look at when making those kinds of forecasts and maybe uh, differentiate between the way you guys do it and, and others do it? Because, you know, not all economists seem to be that accurate very often. So. <laughs> well, that's a good thing for us. That's our competitive right. edge. Right, right. <laughs> That and we're darn nice guys, but yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, at, at the highest level, it is it, it rests on the cyclical theories that Chapin developed in the 40s, and they're still working today. There, there are business cycles, there are industrial cycles, price cycles, um, and there are harmonics involved. It's it's a, it's a wonderful system that provides a construct by which everything else is viewed. Uh, right now, there are only uh, two people on the planet that know that. Uh, Theory, theoretical base, that would be my brother and I, uh, but we'll pass that on in due time. We're beginning to pass it on now, as a matter of fact, to, uh, to his kids, and, which is a good thing. And then below that, though, we find that we do use leading indicators uh, in a different way than a lot of people do, and that we use rate of change, the rate of growth of something. So you, you might hear on the news, for instance, that uh, consumer confidence is up. Uh, that's not a great leading indicator. That, that monthly number that's in the news has the accuracy of flipping a coin. is 50% accurate. But when you convert it to a rate of change, look at the year-over-year -year growth rate on a three-month rolling basis, 12-month rolling basis, one-month rolling basis. Now you have a tool where there's a lot of noise that is smoothed out and you start seeing trends. 
and you relate those rate of change trends to what's happening in the economy, GDP, industrial production, mining, distribution, whatever. And now you find that you can build a system of leading indicators, which would use the purchasing managers index from the Institute for Supply Management on a rate of change basis. Housing starts on a rate of change basis. And, and all the ones that you would normally uh, think of running across, uh, total industrial capacity utilization rate, machinery capacity utilization rate, uh, things that would impact consumer spending, uh, like the savings rate. Uh, all the things that are out there, our differentiator is using rates of change applied to rates of change because it's a mathematical certainty that those rates of change will lead people's perceptions and will actually lead uh, what a lot of people see as a trend in the data. A lot of people see noise in the monthly data, but with the rate of change, you actually see a trend developing. So, so in other words, you're looking at this as a dynamic indicators in a more dynamic way, probably than than some of these others uh, who, um, you know, who, who seem to not be quite as accurate. Now, let's dive into that accuracy a little bit more, because obviously, when you say 94 percent, you know, you can say 94 percent, uh, you know, when we predict a, a week before something happens. Or like, or like <laughs> yeah. a year, or, That'd be easy. Right. Or, or after it happens. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. So so let's look at 2008. How, uh, you know, obviously we know what happened in 2008, the, the you know, blood in the street. Did, did you know it was coming more than, you know, how long ahead of that did you know it was ha- going to happen? Uh, we were out publicly in 2005 with that. Wow. And we were speaking, speaking to Vistage groups about it beginning in about 2006, uh, which I know you're familiar with Vistage. And we were um, using our leading indicators and our the- uh, theoretical construct. And we were, we were learning what CDSs were along with everybody else. And once we, we started hearing those terms and started putting it together, we went, this is a ticking time bomb. And, right. and we just put it together with all the other pieces, consumer spending, irrational behavior, exuberant behavior, housing uh, money going to people who could never pay it back. And, you know, the closer you got, the more obvious it became that this was uh, just waiting to explode. It right. was absolutely predictable. So people said they could never see it coming. We were actually of the mindset, how could you not see it coming? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and that 94.7% relates to 12 months into the future. Yeah. And, 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 and what was it about, let's just kind of, you know, just briefly, I know it's a complex topic, but what was it in 2008 that made it so obvious? Um, well, the fact that the, the CDSs were, were not finding a market. I mean, that was right before the crash. I'm trying to figure out where exactly to place that. When you look at the, the guarantees by the Federal Reserve Board, weren't guarantees, wrong word, by the assertions by the Federal Reserve Board that prices were going to stay up and there wasn't going to be any harm. When you knew they weren't really looking at the problem and they were looking over to the left and the problem was actually on the right, made, made us worry about, oh my gosh, they're not even going to be dealing with this until it's too late. And, and their assertions, public assertions, which we took them on face value, were actually correct. They were looking to the left and they should have been looking to the right. And that's one of those things where if, if they're missing that train coming, it's, the wreck is going to be unbelievable. Do you, you know, and it brings up a good point because I think, you know, and you point out in, or you, you and your brother point out in your book, um, uh, Prosperity in the Age of Decline, that, you know, the, the, the Fed has been wrong frequently, if not most of the time. Um, but it's made up of quite a few smart people. And, and so, 
how, how did so the question to me that that comes in my mind is do they say one thing and believe another uh in in an attempt to sort of not in a malicious way but in a way to influence the economy in a better way do you think there's an element of that there used to be an element of that uh Alan Greenspan was famous for his double speak. You probably remember that. And that's because he wanted to say the truth without anybody being able to parse out what, what yeah, that was. Right, right, right. Sure, <laughs> sure. But Dr. Bernanke was really an open and, and a straight shooter. Uh, the, you actually hit upon the answer earlier in that uh, we use a dynamic model and they use a static model. You know, Got it. And, and that's all the difference in the world. Yeah. So I was listening to an interview you did back in 2016. Um, in which you said that you were optimistic about the U.S. economy until maybe the latter stages of 2018, uh, when we might start experiencing a slowdown and then possibly a recession uh, in 2019. We're obviously sort of in the later stages of 2018. Are we slowing down right now? Uh, not Most markets are not. Most industries are not. But we are there as far as that forecast goes because all leading indicators that we use, the G7, JP Morgan, the ones I've already mentioned, uh, the stock market 12-12 rate of change, uh, warnings, uh, earnings per share warnings by you know, S&P 500 for the stock market. I mean, there's, there's a long list of them. All of them except the U.S. leading indicator is saying the economy will be slowing down next year. Copper prices, uh, rates of change moving down. All these rates of change are hitting the deck or moving lower and telling us then that the economy will be slowing down. And there will be some recession in some industries. Yeah. And, and so, so along that lines, I wonder how much of, you know, a big tax cut <clears throat> from the Trump administration might have delayed some of that. But in, on the other hand, I, I've heard you say that, you know, politics doesn't really affect the economy. You know, um, we've got a big tax cut. Um, you know, we've got some pretty significant uh, differences in this administration, a big tax cut, tightening of immigration. Um, you know, a little bit tighter uh, trade policies. Do these really do these issues ultimately really not matter that much in the long run? <laughs> uh, no, actually, <laughs> I'm laughing because when you heard me say that in the past in recordings or elsewhere, I should have had the foresight to say uh, when Congress and the government is operating as normal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. right. <laughs> this is, we're, I, I don't know about you, but I run into business leaders all the time. That are, they, all they say is, we never thought we'd live to see things like this. This is, this is you know, the pace of change and the way things are forced. Uh, absolutely incredible. So the, the tax law change uh, does seem to be having a positive impact, not nearly as big as Washington touted and hoped, but and we're not seeing it much in CapEx yet. One month of good data for CapEx. Uh, the, the retail spending is a little better than last year, not a whole lot better. So you're probably seeing some benefit from tax law change. Uh, you mentioned immigration. Tightening up on immigration does have a slower impact on the economy, but it's going to exacerbate an existing problem, which is a lack of labor. We don't produce enough labor in this country internally, so we, we need immigrants in order to fuel the quench the thirst for labor. Not there. So, um, you know, you're, when you're predicting um, this recession, one of the things that, you know, and the, these 
uh, I would call them sort of alternative alternative financial uh, podcasting communities that I'm sort of part of peripherally. You know, a lot of uh, death and doom and destruction <laughs> predictions all the time, and and um, and so that's one of the reasons that I, I I really enjoy listening to you and your brother is because it it really is is coming at it from a, a slight. It's a different perspective. You know, it's a little bit more, in my view, a little bit more rational. Um, when this recession happens, though. And I think now you guys are predicting it. The doom and gloomers are predicting it. This, uh, what does it look like? I mean, does it, it doesn't look like 2008. Or, or is this something that, you know, happens that we don't even, most of us don't even really realize happened until somebody tells us it happened two months ago or something like that? <laughs> you know, that's a good description for it. I think uh, the large part of the population is going to, uh, see that things have slowed down some. I think the person on the street is going to probably notice that they're feeling some pressure on prices because inflation is taking away some of their discretionary spend. Businesses are going to see that the demand of intense pressure they've had to hire and to do is going to ease up some. Uh, you used the word recession, which is technically true because there will be two quarters of decline in industrial production. But I want to make sure that I'm clear that it's not in GDP. GDP just flattens out. So there's no technical recession in GDP, just in industrial production. And some industries will just see a softness. Uh, and you raise a good question. How observant are a lot of people to notice a softness, uh, the, the nuance of a softness as opposed to an actual crash? There won't be a crash, so a lot of people will just miss it. Yeah, and, and so, you know, the other thing that, that makes me think of is, um, you know, you're used to, I think, talking to business owners uh, the first time, um, I actually met your brother was through a Vistage meeting. Um, and how, how do we as investors look at this more, uh, uh, you know, this uh, short-term recession? Do we look at this as something that we should be reacting to at all? I mean, obviously there is some, uh, from the real estate side at least, where you know I'm most familiar, and I think the stock market where most people would agree, there is some asset bu- asset uh, uh, bubbles there. Um, Do you see, uh, is there any part of your prediction really kind of relate to those uh, bubbles and possibly deflating of some of those asset bubbles? I think we are seeing some of that, but not like what will be in the future, not like what we've seen in the past. As far as action items, I think it's to look at it as a period of opportunity. 19 will be a period where opportunistic purchasers can be made of real estate and of equities. Because you know, of a softening? Uh, that's right. Sort of, yeah. To us, it looks easy to see that there's a correction coming to stock market. Uh, a lot of people will flee, but to your listeners, uh, I hope they take it as a buying opportunity. Yep. Uh, because it will come back on the other side. We're looking at a nice 20, a nice 2021. 20, so if, if prices pull back 15, pile in and, and take advantage of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and that brings me to the next thing, which is, uh, even and we'll get to the depression in a second because again that, that that's uh, that's what uh, I remember Brian talking about at the meeting. But what I'm really fascinated about is what you guys are calling the coming of the Roaring Twenties. Tell me about the Roaring Twenties because really I'm not hearing any economists talk about this right now. What what is going to make it roar? <laughs> um. Millennials will make it roar, uh, is the short answer to your question. And, and that's a bit of a misnomer. Uh, Brian and I know what we mean historically by that, but we have not done a good job communicating that. So thank you for asking. 
The Roaring Twenties of the 1920s, which they were called the Roaring Twenties, saw the national wealth double. Uh, so we're going to see wealth creation and we're going to see the nation get wealthier and people get wealthier. But there were still three recessions in the 1920s. So when I say a roaring 20s, often people think there's no downturns. Right. There's likely to be two or three recessions in, in the coming decade. And one of them we think will be very noticeable. Um, so like the first tremor coming for that Great Depression you were talking about. But more than that, well, perhaps as important as that, in the 1920s, there was cultural change. Uh, we had flappers, we had prohibition, we have women getting the vote. Uh, you know, those are pretty big items that we look back and go, well, you know, yeah. But back then it was, oh, man, what's going on in our world? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I happen to believe, this is not ITR dogma, this is Alan speaking, that the millennials who now make up most of the workforce are going to grow in power, they're going to grow in, in wealth, and they're going to be putting change into our culture. And that smart business owners, have to be ready for that, that, that your audience has to say, all right, I'm used to dealing with this type of client, but the new client is this type of client, and I better adjust my focus here. I better be ready for that. And it impacts products, it impacts uh, supply chain, it impacts everything. And I think that's part of the roaring 20s is the change that will be occurring in that time period to our culture, driven by a new generation with slightly different values, uh, very strong generation, very smart generation, very driven generation. They get all kinds of bad press, but these are actually the opposite of what the, the bad press says they are. Do you see the Do you see that GDP growth doubling though? Do you see that kind of uh, that kind of uh, you know financial um, uh, reflection on that as well, or, or or just in general, just say, hey, these are this is a decent decade. This is well, it's probably better than decent, and but not doubling because the, back then the numerator was so small you could double. Now the denominator is so big it's impossible to yeah. double. Yeah. But that good wealth creation and something you and I would remember, uh, inflation is going to come back. Mm-hmm. And in the, the 1920s had an inflationary period. We're going to see it, we think, in the latter half of the 2020s, where we're likely to see mild, pleasant inflation in the first half of the decade, kind of everybody lives with, is comfortable. And then it's going to really take off and it'll be like the late 1970s, early 1980s again, which means the baby boomers are going to love it because they retire with high fixed income. So if you're, again, our listeners today that are, who's participating, they're going to have a nice high fixed incomes because they're going to take their nest egg, whatever size it is, and be able to just casually get eight, nine, 10%. Today it's like, well, that's a lot of work and there's risk, but it'll be safest. I was almost said safest Sears, but. That's no longer applicable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they'll get, we'll have a nice, comfortable retirement. It's going to be great for us. For Gen Xers, it's a tougher time because they're going into their peak years. Uh, high interest rates going to slow things down. It's going to eventually lead to a downturn in the economy right in their peak years. And millennials who are at that point looking to buy their first house, looking to get the car, looking to start the family they're going to set themselves up for a lot of failure because of what follows in the 2030s. So it's, it's, it's a great time for me. It's a good time for you. It's very dangerous for a lot of other people who are just not prepared for it. So let's, let's go to the 2030s now, because this is, you know, this is something that, um, you know, ever since I heard Brian talking about this, frankly, this, I have been planning a little bit around this positioning myself to potentially exit various things, um, you know, in the late 20, uh, 2020s, uh, yes. et cetera. 
tell it tell us about the you know this confluence uh, of of issues you know namely demographics debt inflation all these things that are coming together uh and and when that happens why that happens etc sure uh, i'll be happy to and it begins with understanding the confluence and thank you for mentioning that word because a lot of people want to look for a cause and it's not a cause it's multi-causal it's the fact that these things are happening together that makes a difference and it's, and it's a confluence globally not just nationally if it was just japan then the united states would, would you know get a take a serious hit to the bow but we'd be fine if it was just china it would hurt but not sink the ship the fact that it involves japan and china and russia and germany and the United Kingdom and Canada and Mexico and and you know the major nations of the world really makes a difference because the United States as much as we like to think we're isolated we need the rest of the world we need the rest of the world a to buy goods we're the second largest exporting nation in the world so if they're gone that's about six percent of GDP that doesn't have much to sell to and more importantly we need them to buy our debt i'm sure you're well in tune with that but as a debtor nation having to sell three billion what averages three billion dollars a day if those nations are having great financial troubles they're not going to be buying our debt to the level that we need to sustain our economy the u.s government needs and the u.s government is about 21 percent of our gdp and if all of a sudden they're struggling financially and and they're not spending money it really hurts borrowing costs go up dramatically and as borrowing costs go up dramatically, that takes more out of the federal budget, which makes everything else a little worse. And the thing begins to implode on itself by inches until all of a sudden it's just all in on itself. It's also driven by an aging demographic around the world. Uh, Japan's population shrinks every year, as does Russia's, by the way. Uh, it actually goes down. Ours is shrinking just by inches every year because we're not procreating enough. Uh, people listening can decide what they want to do with that, but the reality is, the fertility rate is not what it's supposed to be or what it should be, which is 2.1. So with all of us baby boomers that are going to be drawing down on Medicare and prescription drugs, while there are less people to pay for it, while we're, our debt problems are growing bigger, we find a, a top, if you will, that is spinning, that as it slows down, all tops become less stable as they slow down. And there's nobody out there to spin it again because they're all experiencing the same problem. So we have inflation driving up interest rates. We have an aging population really dragging down the federal government on spending. And we find borrowing needs growing at a time when borrowing becomes very hard to do. Um, you mentioned China and 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 this. I'm curious to to know more about where you what's going to happen with China right now. You know, um, I love this in in your book. You talk about how uh, we used to look at Japan. Uh, the same way that we're looking at China right now, you know, like Japan's going to take over the world. Japan's going to be the biggest economy, all these, you know, ideas. And then boom, all of a sudden Japan just kind of went away. Yep. Um, the Chinese one child, uh, uh, they had for a period of time, I don't even know if, if, if they still have it, but a law basically allowing for one child per family. Is that going to come back and just decimate the economy? It already is hurting, uh, and you're absolutely right. And I would add to, besides one-child policy, you should probably add the phrase with gender selection. That was optional, but they chose males. Right, right. So the CIA estimate last I saw was that there are 125 million young men without women in China today. Uh, 
and talk to anybody you want in sociology uh, and probably economics that breeds all kinds of what well, doesn't breed actually uh, results in <laughs> bad word there, right? Bad word. Yeah. <laughs> it results in all kinds of social instability and social instability is one of the worst things that can happen in China because that's their, their biggest fear. And they also have China to continue that discussion, a, a huge debt problem. The province's uh, debt to GDP is uh, the debt is much higher than GDP. And, and, that doesn't get much press. The United States gets it all the time. People ignore China, but it's real. And the state-owned enterprises aren't paying back to state-owned banks. So you have a banking system that is getting hollowed out. And since the government owns them both, they ignore it all. Uh, but it's, that's not healthy for any economy to have an unhealthy banking system, even in a command and control one. It, it becomes problematic. And the, and the president, as he began his second term, was handed the keys to the kingdom, literally, and then they made him president for life. Right. So with that, he decided to go away from free trade and move back to state-owned enterprises and remarked that he would have free trade pay for it. So we have an inefficient system being supported by the efficient system, which only breeds cost increases. While there's cost increases for cleaning up the environment, while there's a banking system, while there's debt, while there's a population problem, all of that is a heavy load that will keep them from surpassing the United States. It's just not going to happen. Not in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, well, hopefully, hopefully it will be, but, it, um, <laughs> so I'm, so I'm 45 years old. Um, if knowing what, um, what you know, in terms of the, the upcoming decline, how would you recommend, and I'm not asking for financial advice, but in broadly speaking, um, <laughs> How would you look at somebody who's 40, you know, mid 40s today and say, this is how I would position myself if, if I was for, in my mid 40s and I, and I know what I know right now? The answer would depend upon their position in life. So I'm going to assume uh, uh, somebody who owns properties and has a modest amount of wealth. It's not extremely wealthy, but has an, enough wealth and they're comfortable and happy in life. Um, what you mentally prepare is by saying, I have 12 years to finish what I, what I want to finish. Because in the Great Depression, the rules all change. So I have 12 years to decide, all right, if I own some property, will I ride it through a Great Depression knowing the values are going to come down, the rents are going to come down, the occupant, unoccupied rate is going to go up. So uh, do I want to do that or do I want to sell it right before it all comes down? And of course, the ideal thing is to sell it right before it all comes down. So let's assume you have a million dollars worth of real estate. You sell your million dollars worth of real estate in 2029. You go off to the side with it. You get a reasonable rate of return for a few years, which by that I mean 7 8% in an Australian bond, for instance, or some highly stable bond, probably not a U.S. bond. And then somewhere near the trough, and nobody times the trough exactly in my world, but somewhere near the trough, you take that million dollars plus a little bit of interest, and you go back into real estate, but what you sold for a million, you can now buy back for 500,000. So you're going to then buy it back in theory or like assets, and you're gonna write it up the other side so that it rides back up to a million and then more. You're young enough to be able to do that. So you're gonna have pocketed a half million dollars in profit and you end up with an asset base that's the same as you started with. And so the depression actually becomes a great wealth creating opportunity uh, for somebody like you. Right, and in terms of the uh you know the 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 types of things that one should 
you know, consider uh, being invested in. Um, what what types of things? I mean, generally, I mean, the good news for for the audience that I have here is that we all kind of believe in owning assets, uh, real assets that uh, generally will probably do well in inflation. I mean, they will inflate with inflation. Right. Um, when you what what's not a good idea to to hold on to during the period? Uh, that's the opposite of what most people ask, by the way. Usually I guess, what is a good idea? What's yeah. supposed to be not a good idea? You don't want to be owning assets or businesses or property but that are tied to the consumer. Yeah. If, if it's a strip mall or if it's a mall of any kind, it's going to go empty. The stores will be going bankrupt. You'll go bankrupt along with it. But if you have a you know, set of apartments where you have a low cost basis because your mortgage is old, and you can see your rents go down and you'll be safe and fine, then you have obviously no risk. It's, it's a question of what type of real estate you have. And the closer you're tied to the consumer, the more dangerous it'll be. If you own a property that you're leasing to your brother-in-law who runs an automobile dealership, uh, he's going to stop paying the rent. He's not going to have a choice. Um, if you want to rent farmland to farmers, that's good business because they'll be there and they'll be selling uh, grain and, and goods you know, to people who still need to eat. So basically the things that, you know, getting back to basics, it's things that are essential. And, um, you know, people, uh, as you've pointed out, and I think it's a, it's a really good um, thing to take away from this, which is, you know, a depression for somebody who knows it's coming can be one of the greatest wealth creating uh, periods in your life. I mean, the, the, the number of people who, uh, who came out of the Great Depression uh, who, who, in the 20s, um, who built their, you know, multi-generational wealth uh, is, is fascinating. And I think there's an opportunity potentially to do that again. Um, I want to um, uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, this book that I've specifically uh, been reading to my kids. <laughs> it's called But I Want It. And, and you and your brother wrote it. Uh, it's a uh, uh, my my girls are nine, five, and three. Tell us why you wrote it and um, and what what you're trying to emphasize there. Sure, I'd be happy to. And if I may, I'll add that my wife was primarily involved in writing it too. I don't want to leave my wife Dawn out of it. Her name's <laughs> yeah. on the cover, and we could not have done it without her because she worked with kids all of her life, and and she took our idea and even what I wrote. And she said, "These are not adults. These are not little adults. These are children." And she wrote, wrote the text to uh, to fit kids, which we're very grateful for. The reason we wrote it was so that another generation, skipping the one right behind us, the two right behind us actually, would learn what it means to budget, to save, and also to do good with money. Uh, and that's the moral use of the word good. I didn't mean well, I meant good. And so that there are, there are subtle obligations, maybe too strong, but there are subtleties to humanity that require if you have money and you can help somebody out, that's a good thing. So it's about saving, budgeting, spending wisely, and being a good citizen as you go along. Um, it was written with those four things in mind. And as you know, we have the slob machine in the book. Uh, and the O stands for others and savings and, and the rest of it. Uh, we also wrote it for charity. 100% of the proceeds of every book, we, the three of us cover the costs ourselves. So 100% of the proceeds goes to charity. At the moment, it's a children's charity here in Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, Breaks your heart when you look at them, underprivileged kids looking for food, looking for clothes, looking for boots for the winter. Uh, their last time we wrote a check, uh, it was just fortuitous. It was not certainly not planned. 
they were two weeks away from going out of business uh, as a charity. And, and we just happened to have, it was a time for us to write our quarterly check. That's great. And so they were able to stay in business. So uh, that's the why we did it. We're definitely going to link to that. Um, and uh, I will plug it again because actually my, uh, as I was telling telling you earlier that my daughters really like the book. They, they, it's one of their mainstays for their bedtime right now, um, which is which makes me proud as a, as a guy who's interested in money and investing. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, five, my five-year-old especially, she wants to read it like twice a night. So um, <laughs> tell me, tell us all, like, you know, I know your your, your newsletter and such, they, they geared more towards business owners or, you know, is this something, first of all, tell us about the newsletter that you put out, how we can get it and who it's appropriate for. Yeah, ITR Trends Report is the newsletter you're talking about, and it is appropriate for folks in industry, uh, be it manufacturing, distribution, construction. Uh, the, the single entrepreneurial professional wants something else. Uh, we call that the insider, and that's the ITR insider. That's a, there's a 99-cent version on our website, and um, that is much more geared for the newsletter, quick read, what's going on in the economy, stock market, that kind of Kind of approach so two very different items and i think most of the people based on our early conversation that we're talking about here talking to here would be uh, the itr insider the itr insider and how do you how do you get that it's a- right through our website it's a there's a i'm not sure how many months at 99 cents and then it goes to 20 dollars a month uh, on your credit card is yeah and then you stop whenever you want it's yeah. as easy as that yeah we'll definitely again link to that as well um I want to I want to thank you, Alan, for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. It's been great. Oh, I've had a lot of fun. Thank you for letting me on the show with you. Appreciate it a lot. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back, everyone. I uh, want to uh, first of all I put in another plug for this book, Prosperity in the Age of Decline. Uh, you can find a link to that book at wealthformula.com in the resources section. Um, that is a book that we are actually reading uh, as part of our mastermind um, group in Wealth Formula Network. Uh, as you may recall, uh, we have this course called Wealth Formula, uh, called uh, Your Roadmap to Real Wealth, and that comes along with the community, Wealth Formula Network. And uh, in that uh, network, we have a private forum, private Facebook group, and we have bi-weekly mastermind calls. And we also do these book clubs. We started doing these book clubs. This is the first one, actually. And we're going to do this call on this book. So it should be a lot of fun. If you're interested in learning more about our community, go to wealthformularoadmap.com. Um, and for those of you who are already in Wealth Formula Network, please do your homework. Read the book so we can have a great discussion on this fascinating book, which I am taking very, very seriously, by the way. I am I am uh, positioning myself and planning to exit any of my businesses before uh, 2030 for sure. Anyway, that's it for me this week. Hopefully you enjoy the show. This is Buck Jaffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, Consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? 
The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. 